Well, thank you very much, uh, Victoria, for the invitation to come and speak in the Life Sciences Seminar Series, and thank you to Udpal for that lovely introduction. I'm going to be giving a general lecture today about embryonic stem cells, and I'm going to touch on my work in generation of reproductive cell types just a little bit, because I think it's really important uh, to, to ensure everybody in the room is on the same page about uh, embryonic stem cells, about adult stem cells, and how we work with both types of cells, cells in our research at UCLA. So, what are the basic criteria to call a stem cell a stem cell? There's actually two. One of them is that a stem cell is what we call an undifferentiated cell type. Another word for this is an unspecialized cell type. It has potential. And for this uh, stem cell uh, to be useful to us, it has to be able to divide and replicate and produce another stem cell, something identical to itself. In the stem cell world, we call this proliferation of stem cells self-renewal. So you're self-renewing a stem cell type. This self-renewal is important because it enables us to make lots of stem cells in a dish. So we can make millions and millions of stem cells to do something with. So self-renewal of stem cells is absolutely critical to the field of stem cell biology. Another basic criteria that makes a stem cell a stem cell is its ability to differentiate. And another way of saying this is to specialize and become a different cell type. And so the cell that a stem cell can differentiate into is actually dependent upon the type of stem cell that you're starting with. Because not all stem cells can form all different cell types. It's only certain, certain types of stem cells that can form all lineages of our body that's embryonic stem cells, whereas other stem cell types can differentiate, but they're more restricted in what their potential is and what they can become. I'm going to talk about that also in the next few slides of this talk. So as scientists, we're incredibly excited about stem cell biology because of their applications, not just to research, but also to human health. And so the way we think about this in a simple way is that we begin with our stem cell, this is a scientist, um, and we differentiate it into whatever these cell types can be differentiated into, whether they're cardiac cells, reproductive cells if you're working in my lab, uh, liver cells, neural cells, and then we can use these differentiated cells to study or to use in a therapy. So this is a list of the different things that we as scientists are working on with the cells we differentiate from stem cells. So one example is we can differentiate, use, differentiate these cells and use them in, in a cell-based therapy. That's the basis of regenerative medicine. Or we could differentiate cells and study normal embryogenesis. We really don't understand how human embryos develop and how lineage specification occurs. And we can use embryonic stem cells as a window into this period that's it's currently unavailable for research. We can use these stem differentiated cells to study mechanisms of disease. Let's say your stem cell has a mutation in it. So we want to differentiate a cell and see how that mutation affects the function or the differentiation type of that cell. We can create these differentiated cell types in a dish, in a dish and then screen um, drugs to see how, the, how um, particular, for example, FDA-approved drug could affect the function of your cell that you're making. And finally, we can use embryonic stem cells to differentiate different lineages in dish to study teratology. So what drugs or chemicals in our environment already exist that can have a negative impact on embryogenesis and embryo development. And perhaps those are the ones that we um, should, be, uh, should be avoiding, for example, giving women who are pregnant 
or we can be more informed about, um, um, about certain chemicals in our environment and how that can affect the unborn. So all of these things are wonderful applications for stem cell biology and we're really just scratching the surface of using these uh, types of applications. And in the next decade you'll see a lot more of these sorts of uses uh, for, as applied uses for stem cell biology. So I told you there was different types of stem cells and the different types of stem cells will make different things. So how can we classify these? So I like to separate um, stem cells into two different types. Uh, the embryonic stem cells, which come from pre-implantation embryos, and these are two pictures of pre-implantation embryos that would be uh, obtained from consent, by consent from the in vitro fertilization clinic, um, and then the non-embryonic stem cells. So these are stem cells that are also called tissue-specific stem cells. You've also heard them referred to as adult stem cells. Uh, some examples of these are mesenchymal stem cells, and these can form a bone, uh, fat and blood, and um, that's about it. Bone marrow stem cells, they can form other blood cell types. And cord blood stem cells, uh, which many of you I'm sure have heard about with cord blood banking, they form more blood stem cells. So they're restricted in their potential, but they can form blood cells. The non-embryonic stem cells um, uh, uh, can only differentiate into certain cell types, whereas embryonic stem cells can differentiate into all cell types. So that's a, a pretty nice way of dividing these two different types of stem cells. So non-embryonic stem cells have actually been used to treat disease. They're used today in the clinic. And one of the most important examples of this are, um, are cells that are derived from the bone marrow. And I'm sure many of you in this room have heard of or know of somebody who's had a bone marrow transplant. So uh, this is a type of adult stem cell that's used to cures, cure blood diseases. And it was pioneered in the 1950s to 1970s. So the first uh, bone marrow transplant was performed in the early 1960s. In the, sorry, in the early 1960s. Another type of adult stem cell is the limbal stem cell, and this comes from the eye. And this has been used in the United Kingdom to restore sight to individuals that have become blind due to damage to the cornea. It hasn't been used in many cases, but it's certainly been used in academic settings uh, as, as, as a potential cure for blindness. And then finally, this is a, an experimental protocol that's been performed in two places. Um, uh, both have been in the United Kingdom, where a scaffold has been generated, and this scaffold has been seeded with mesenchymal cells, and that has created a cell layer that surrounds this scaffold, and that creates a little miniature part of a trachea, so it's part of your windpipe. So this has been used to actually treat individuals who had their windpipe damaged by disease, um, and then this has been used to replace the piece of damaged windpipes. That's only been performed twice. So it's very clear that stem cells are exciting and they are in clinical practice today, and in particular, adult stem cells are leading the way. Now, what about embryonic stem cells? So I told you that um, hematopoietic stem cells were first used to treat human disease in the 1960s. Embryonic stem cells, in contrast, were first identified in uh, the late uh, 1980s, 1998, and they were described by this scientist here, Jamie Thompson, uh, who is at the University of Wisconsin, and this is his paper that was published in Science magazine. And what you're looking at here is the initial derivation of one human embryonic stem cell line from one human blastocyst. So what you have, this is a stromal layer, 
And this is um, a blastocyst that's been placed on this stromal layer. And then from out of this blastocyst grows um, pluripotent cells. And what these do is generate an embryonic stem cell line. And an embryonic stem cell line grows as um, multiple little colonies. So this is one colony which is growing on this uh, stromal feeder, feeder layer. So if we look at this colony at really high power, this is what you would see. Uh, this is hundreds of cells that are tightly packed together and they have a particular cobblestone shape. And when you induce these embryonic stem cells to differentiate, they change their morphology and they start to express genes that are associated with embryonic uh, lineage differentiation, early embryonic cell types. So you, I think all of you can appreciate that there's a change in morphology from one cell to another. So, embryonic stem cells, they basically um, are um, just over a decade old and in the last decade as we've worked with these embryonic stem cells, we've recognised there, there are a number of hurdles that we need to overcome before these cells can become useful in the research lab and also useful um, as we move towards um, therapy with embryonic stem cells. One of the things we're beginning to appreciate is how do you grow these embryonic stem cells properly? How do you promote their self-renewal, their proliferation of dish so we can grow them at scale? Everybody in the embryonic stem cell community recognises that an em human embryonic stem cells are incredibly hard to grow, especially compared to other species such as mouse embryonic stem cells. And so we need to develop better media formulations in order to uh, improve the way we grow our embryonic stem cells. And that's what I'm going to be talking about with you a lot today. We need to consider the safety of embryonic stem cells. Uh, we, we need to derive um, embryonic stem cell lines that are called clinic grade. So these, this means that they've been derived uh, in a way that the Food and Drug Administration in the US has, has deemed appropriate for clinic use. So it's very specific criteria that you need to follow before the, the US FDA will actually approve an embryonic stem cell line um, to be used in clinical practice. And this is something that we are also working on at UCLA. Uh, in terms of safety, we need to identify embryonic stem cell lines that carry tumorigenic risk. We need to sequence their genomes in order to determine whether the um, oncogenes and tumor, tumor suppressors actually uh, contain a normal genomic sequence and we're not putting cells in patients that run the risk of causing cancer. So these are things that we need to think about. Histocompatibility is important, having enough cell lines that, are, that cover a diverse population. And finally, directed differentiation. So we can induce differentiation of embryonic stem cells into various cell types, but we want to be able to do it consistently and we want to be able to do it as accurately as possible. And this is something that directed differentiation is one of the biggest bottlenecks in the field of embryonic stem cell research and individual labs are working towards this problem um, today. Despite all these hurdles, there actually are two FDA-approved clinical trials with embryonic stem cells in the United States. One is to treat individuals who suffer from Stargardt's macular degeneration. So if you were an individual that suffers from Stargardt's, this is what your vision would look like. It's like you'd have a cloud right in the center of your line of sight. This is what we see. We see um, a, a young child and a woman. And so in this particular um, FDA-approved trial, retinal pigmented epithelial cells, RPE cells, are differentiated from human embryonic stem cells, and these RPE cells are actually transplanted into the eye. The other trial that has been approved in the United States, it's a trial for spinal cord injury. And this is a trial that um, has originated from the company Geron. And in this particular um, embryonic stem cell trial, 
uh, uh, glial precursor cells are differentiated from embryonic stem cells and these are used to treat uh, individuals who have had a grade A spinal cord injury and this is one of the most severe spinal cord injuries and, um, and this trial has actually currently enrolled one patient. So uh, phase, this is, these are both phase one trials, these are safety trials to determine that the cells that are putting in are not going to cause harm to the individual. And so when you're thinking about stem cell therapies and stem cell trials, you want them to be carefully monitored by um, governing bodies such as the Food and Drug Administration to ensure their safety um, and ensure that they are not going to cause more harm to the individual. So, so that's where we're heading towards. We're heading towards using embryonic stem cells in clinical practice. But today, embryonic stem cells make wonderful experimental models to understand embryonic lineage differentiation. So in my lab, we are interested in causes behind human infertility. And so if I look around the room, I see there's about 100 people here in the room today. 10 people in this room will be diagnosed as being infertile. Infertility in the United States is actually 10% of reproductive age population. And we don't know the reasons behind many causes of infertility. So we can use embryonic stem cells to differentiate reproductive cell types in order to understand some of these causes. Another wonderful use of embryonic stem cells is to differentiate um, cardiac progenitor cells. And I'm going to show you an example of that now. So these are embryonic stem cells that have been differentiated into a number of cell types, and one of them are cardiac progenitors. And this is an example where you can see that cells in this dish have got an autonomous beat. So they're beating like cardiac cells. And then this is another example here, which is showing you that there's a number of foci in the dish that have this autonomous beat. So you could imagine that you could use these cells and add drugs to them and see if the beat goes faster, or can you slow this beat down? So the applications here are incredibly promising. But we need to work out how do we differentiate these cell types in a consistent, reproducible way in the lab. So the controversy of embryonic stem cells is that they, these cell types are derived from embryos that are left over from the in vitro fertilization clinic. And I've put this slide up because um, this shows uh, Robert Edwards, who's the pioneer of in vitro fertilization. Uh, IVF, the first successful IVF, was performed in uh, 1988, and the um, recipient of the therapy was Leslie Brown, who's shown here, and her daughter, Louise Brown, who um, is the, now the adult child who was the, um, who was the first um, IVF baby, and she's holding her son, Cameron. So this shows that you can restore infertility in one person, and then the life cycle of the next generation can continue and continue and continue. Um, and if we were Robert Edwards, who was looking down the microscope, 32 years ago, this is the type of thing that we would have seen. So in the IVF clinic, you have um, the eggs uh, and you have the spermatozoa. So that's these little, um, this little cell here with its head and its tail. Um, these, uh, one spermatozoa will fertilize one egg and that gives this little structure here. This is a one cell embryo and you can see two pronuclei. One is the, comes from the mum, one comes from the dad. This will divide to generate this cleavage stage embryo, so there's about 16 cells here. This will continue to divide to generate this structure here. This is called a blastocyst. And it's the blastocyst which is implanted um, in the IVF clinic in order to restore fertility. Now the important thing about the blastocyst is there's this little group of cells here. It's about 50 cells. And this is the cells where embryonic stem cells come from. 
um, this, these outer cells here are the trophoblast cells which would form the placenta and they uh, do not grow out in a culture dish when they're deriving embryonic stem cells. Now for any of you that are interested, 1% of all births in the United States actually are arising from in vitro fertilization. And many of you in the room I'm sure m probably know couples that have had to go through IVF in order to uh, restore their fertility. So IVF is a common practice in today's society. Robert Edwards won the Nobel Prize for it this year in physiology and medicine because it's such a widely used technology worldwide. The byproduct of IVF is there are a lot of surplus embryos that are frozen in cryobanks around the United States and around the world. So Rand Corporation decided to do a study of this. How many embryos are in storage within the United States? And this study, it's an old study published in 2003, and these numbers are most likely higher now, but this is the uh, most accurate um, numbers that I could come up with. So they found that as of April 2002, there were just under 400,000 embryos in storage in the United States. And they came up with this number by sending out surveys to IVF clinics to ask them, how many embryos do you have in storage and what is their documented use? What, what is the current plan as of now for that embryo? And so as it turns out, most of them, almost 90% of them, are planned for use in family planning. So these are individuals that have come in, they've gone through one cycle of IVF, they've stored the rest of the embryos, they're in storage so that they can have another brother or sister for their existing child, or if the IVF doesn't work, then they will go back to these stored embryos and they will try again. So most embryos are for family planning uh, building. However, about 10% of them uh, at that time were consented for other uses. And about 3%, so 2.8% at, at um, this time, were consented for research. So if you can imagine, and perhaps there's some mathematicians in the audience, around 3% to 400,000, it's about... 12,000. Very good, 12,000 embryos. A lot of embryos are being consented to research in the United States. Um, uh, around 2% have been donated to others, so other couples who, um, this is like an adoption, embryo adoption plan. Um, and about 2% of them, um, around 8,000 are discarded at any given time, and then other. So there's a lot of embryos that are being consented to research. What about embryonic stem cell lines? So this is a study that was published in 2010, and this was looking at all of embryonic stem cell lines that had been deposited in banks. So there's various banks around the world. There's uh, five major banks around the world that, that accept um, embryonic stem cell lines, and also they looked at various publications that describe derivation of embryonic stem cell lines. As it turns out, there are 1,000 or just over 1,000 embryonic stem cell lines uh, um, that have been documented in the world as of 2010. Now, interestingly, just under half of them have come from derivations in the United States, which is quite remarkable because the National Institute of Health does not fund embryonic stem cell derivation. So this work is all, is all coming uh, from, um, uh, from philanthropy or from uh, private foundations. And about a quarter of them, so this is a European study, as you can tell, which is why I'm sorry, it's broken up into European versus non-European countries. And about a quarter of these embryonic stem cell lines um, were derived in European Union countries. So a thousand lines, that's actually a reasonable number of lines, right? I think so. However, this is where the problem is. We have a thousand lines, only about a quarter of them, are, or under a quarter of them, are actually available to scientists for use in our research. So there's a lot of lines that are not being distributed for various reasons, and if you're interested, I can talk to you afterwards about why this is. It's quite complicated. But the bottom line is there's not many that are distributed. 
As it turns out, most of this distribution comes from lines that have been derived in European Union countries. And a lot of this has to do with the fact they have a very good banking system and also um, uh, government support for these banks to enable distribution. And unfortunately in the United States, and at the time this is actually a little bit higher now, um, although we've generated a lot of lines, we're not very good at distributing them to the scientific community. So of the thousand lines that uh, exist worldwide, only around 200 of them are available. Another problem with the current embryonic stem cell lines is their ethnic diversity, so the ethnicity that they actually represent. And so this was a study that was done by Janine Loring at the Scripps Institute, published in 2010. And what her group looked at was 42 human embryonic stem cell lines. And they performed um, single nucleotide polymorphism analysis and copy number variant analysis. So this is looking at changes in our DNA that can tell us what um, ethnic pool that particular DNA, therefore cell line, came from. This was published in Nature Methods. And this is a picture taken from her paper. And what she was looking at was these big circles, which are embryonic stem cell lines, the site of embryonic stem cell derivation, because the site of derivation doesn't necessarily mean that's the ethnic origin of the cell line. But she was looking at the site of derivation, so a couple in Australia, some um, that derived in the US, some that were derived in Europe. And then ultimately, the ethnic origin is these little dots that you can see here. And I think you can appreciate that all of these arrows tend to lead back to a Caucasian Asian origin. So the, the ethnic diversity of embryonic stem cell lines is very, very low. Out of these 42, I think 38 or 39 of them were Caucasian Asian. So we, we haven't actually covered the, uh, the population as we would like in the existing embryonic stem cell lines. So to summarize this section, human embryonic stem cell research is a new field with incredible promise, just over a decade old. However, the existing human embryonic stem cell lines available today to scientists and clinicians have limitations, and in particular, no ethnic diversity, none. Three lines that come from a non-Caucasian Asian population. Um, also, of these thousand lines that have been generated, um, only six of them have been produced with good manufacturing practice. What does that mean? That's an FDA-approved method of growing embryonic stem cell lines. So even though we have 200 of them, only six of them could even be used now in clinical practice. We need to derive more lines that actually are derived in a clinically relevant FDA-approved way. It is essential. One thing I haven't shown you any data for, but I'm going to tell you, is that there is considerable variability in differentiation potential. So some ES cell lines make a lot of endoderms, so pancreatic cells. Other ES cell lines make a lot of neurons, so um, neural cells. Um, but some cell lines don't make very much of those. So how can we predict that? How can we normalize these embryonic stem cell lines so that they generate robust proportions of cells of different lineages? This is something that is a real next frontier in stem cell biology. Most of the lines that we work with as scientists are distributed, distributed as old lines, and we think that's important. Old lines mean they've been passaged for a while, frozen in banks for, um, for three or four more, three years or more, and then thawed and passaged and passaged. And we think that this results in irreversible epigenetic changes. And these epigenetic changes are what's causing this variability from cell line to cell line to cell line. So I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about epigenetics and how, this, and how we're working on strategies to reverse these epigenetic changes to create um, uh, better embryonic stem cell lines. So I can't talk about it until I tell you all a little bit about epigenetics and chromatin. 
Um, and I feel qualified to do this because I teach 144 molecular bi MCDB molecular biology to upper division undergrads. So if they can get it, you can get it. <laughs> um, so you all know what this is. This, is, this to here is DNA. And all of you know that if you have a mutation in your DNA, that's a permanent change. And that gets inherited as the cell divides and the cell divides and the cell divides. And if you have a permanent mutation in your DNA, and that happens to be in your um, eggs and sperm, that's going to get inherited into your children, and every um, cell in your child's body will have that mutation. So that's genetics. What I want to talk about here is epigenetics. So epigenetics is not changes to your DNA, but it's covalent changes to your DNA. And these actually can be reversible. And um, epigenetics also, um, uh, in, as part of epigenetics, we need to think about something called chromatin, which is the proteins that are associated with DNA and tell the DNA to do something. Usually it's expressed genes or not expressed genes. So that's a little nickel and dime tour of epigenetics and chromatin. But I'll, I'll show you some pictures. So this is our DNA. Uh, one epigenetic change is a covalent modification to a cytosine residue in our DNA, and that would be methylation of a cytosine residue. This can cause a, a loss of gene expression in that particular site. So methylation tends to be uh, it tends to be associated with um, low gene expression, so turning off the dial. Now DNA is wrapped around these little protein core, cores um, called nucleosomes. And nucleosomes are composed of eight histone proteins. And histone proteins have these tails, these N-terminal tails, which are very flexible. And those tails can be covalently modified. Um, they can be phosphorylated, they can be methylated. And they too instruct the DNA underneath it to do something, either express genes or repress genes or make availability for transcription factors to bind or close off availability. So these proteins and these covalent modifications on the proteins are instructing the DNA and giving information to the DNA um, to do something and to specialise. The other thing about histones is that, that the DNA is wrapped very tightly around them and it can cause the DNA to compact really tight. And if you can imagine if you're compacting your DNA really tight, nothing's really coming, going to be expressed from that area of the genome. So, so histones are compacting and they're loose and they're compacting and they're loose. And that's a, a very dynamic state of the cell. Okay. Now. So... I need to give you some, a little bit of language. So chromatin, which is our proteins in our DNA, um, if we have something called euchromatin, it means that chromatin is very loosely packed. So it tends to be associated with gene expression, accessibility of proteins to bind to enable gene expression to occur. Heterochromatin tends to be associated with gene repression. So that's the closed up state. These spools uh, of DNA that are wrapped around these histones are really tightly packed together. So no gene expression. The curious thing about embryonic stem cells that has been um, that um, Alex Meisner's group showed us um, at Harvard was that embryonic stem cells tend to be very euchromatic. They have this loose chromatin, this loose chromatin, and the idea is it's because the DNA needs to be poised to respond to differentiation cues, so you can start to get gene expression for, for example, gene expression to cause neuronal cells to form, or endodermal cells to form, or germinative cells to form, or heart cells to form. So it needs to be open and ready to respond. In contrast, committed cells 
tend to have a, a lot more of this heterochromatin. So it's closing off areas of the genome to prevent gene expression from occurring when you don't want it to. So you don't want a cardiac cell to start expressing genes that are associated with neural formation. You want all of that region of the genome to be closed off. So that's why committed cells tend to have heterochromatin. Embryonic stem cells um, tend to have a lot of euchromatin. So I'm going to be talking about those words today. So the hypothesis that my lab had was that epigenetic aging affects embryonic stem cell differentiation potential and epigenetic aging in our case is associated with heterochromatin buildup in the nucleus. If you're getting a lot of heterochromatin, you're closing off the opportunity for that cell to become another cell. So what does that mean? Here's our blastocyst. This is where we get embryonic stem cells from. When we first derive new embryonic stem cell lines, our idea is that these are very naive. They can be given instructions and they'll differentiate into all cell types equally well. But as you grow it in culture and it gets exposed to oxidative stress, because we grow embryonic stem cells in 20% oxygen, air oxygen rather than physiological oxygen, um, suboptimal culture conditions, uh, we freeze thaw them, we subclone them, that means we, use, we, we um, split them as single cells. All of these things cause stresses on the cells. And we hypothesize those sorts of stresses that these cells are seeing are resulting in a heterochromatin buildup, and that is resulting in biased embryonic stem cell lines. So some cell lines forming a lot of one type of cell type and not much of another, and vice versa. So how can we look at that? How can we address that? As it turns out, we can look at this very easily in female <coughs> cells. So um, we can monitor heterochromatin by looking at the formation of something called a bar body. So about 50% of you in this audience are female, so you'll have two X chromosomes, and about 50% of you in this audience are male, you only have one X chromosome. And therein lies the rub. If we have two X chromosomes, we actually need to silence one so that we have the same amount of gene expression coming from our one X chromosome as a male would from having his only one X chromosome. And that's a very physical feature of the cell. So this, is a, um, this would be a stem cell where you have two active X chromosomes. As the stem cells start to commit, you have heterochromatin buildup. And it's random depending upon whether the X chromosome was inherited from the mum, that can cause a uh, bar bodies, so the heterochromatin buildup, or if the X chromosome was inherited from the dad, that can also be shut down in heterochromatin. So this happens as cells start to commit, start to specialize. And we can easily visualize this by looking down the microscope. So this is a nucleus, and this is stained by um, a probe for an RNA called EXIST, and that starts to coat the X chromosome, and after that you'll see heterochromatin forming. We could look for the expression of this um, methylated histone. So this is the histone I was telling you about as part of chromatin. And you can see this dot here. That's a dot of heterochromatin that's building up on an, active, an activated X chromosome. Or you can do this technique, which was developed by my assistant researcher in the lab, where you can stain for the euchromatin in the nucleus, and then you can do fish for the X chromosomes. And what you're looking for is whether one of the X chromosomes is in the euchromatin, so in this red area, and whether the other X chromosome is in an exclusion zone. It's a big fat hole, which is a hole of heterochromatin. And the X chromosome would be deposited in, in there if it's inactive. So these are the sorts of assays we can use to monitor heterochromatin in our embryonic stem cells. So as we were planning these experiments and thinking about it, um, Janine Lee's group at Harvard came up with a category. So they, a category for looking at the X chromosome and this heterochromatin buildup. 
And so they had um, got various cell lines from investigators around the world and they started looking at these techniques, looking using these techniques. And what they noticed as they looked in the dish was that they found three classes of nuclei. Um, they found class one nuclei, which would be the equivalent of those naive, very young ones. The class two nuclei that had those dots of heterochromatin, so it's starting to build up heterochromatin. And then they noticed this weird class three nuclei, which is a non-physiological state of the X chromosome where it's building up um, these non-canonical um, repressive regions. And it hasn't been described before in the body. So this is unique to embryonic stem cells and it's not normal. They also noticed from the limited types of studies they could do, that if they had class one cells, differentiation potential seemed to be good. If they had class three cells, differentiation potential seemed to be not as good. So there seems to be something to this classification of naive cells and then these um, abnormal um, heterochromatin class three cells. So one of the things they couldn't do because um, they were receiving cells from um, around the world was to actually see if this is a progressive phenotype. If you start with cells that are class one, do they naturally progress to class three or is this a stochastic event? So this is something my lab could do. So we worked with the HSF6 line of human ES cells, which is a line that was derived at UCSF um, just before I arrived to do my postdoc. And we traced um, two sublines. So in red is the, class is, the, is the percentage of cells that are at class two nuclei, so already committed. And in white is the percentage of cells that are class three nuclei. So we had two sublines, this one and this one, that were almost 90% class two nuclei very little class 3, and we had a third subline that was already old, it was already class 3. And we traced this from passage 61 to passage 91. To give you a sense of timing, you passage cells once a week. So, um, so this, is, this is longer than a six-month experiment, just to watch these stem cells age in a dish. And what we found was that progressively with time, you started to lose the class 2 nuclei and, and get a buildup of class three nuclei. Whereas the, class, the, the cell lines that were 100% class three nuclei stayed as 100% class three nuclei. So therefore, embryonic stem cells do age. Now you'll notice here, there's no class one. So in all of the female cell lines that we've studied at UCLA um, that have been given to us from um, various places, we have never found a class one nucleus. They're already old. So we need to do something about this. We need to try and reverse this aging process so that we can get back to that new naive stem cell line. And we decided to do that by adding small molecules into our medias. One of the small molecules we decided to use was sodium butyrate. It's a histone deacetylase inhibitor. This is its chemical structure. And it reactivates silent genes. So it acts on chromatin to, to unfold basically those really wound up regions to, to enable gene expression. The other small molecule that we used is a molecule called DZNIP, and it's a histone methylation inhibitor, and it's also been shown to inhibit DNA methylation. Both of these are anti-cancer drugs, and so they have the potential to be FDA approved, and therefore they could be used in FDA compliant medias for growing embryonic stem cells. Oh, I should say none of this is published, so you can't tell anybody. <laughs> Please keep all of this to yourself. <laughs> so, do they work? Well, so what we did was we started, you'll see, embryonic stem cell lines are old. 
Um, so, you know, most of these studies on the old bank lines, they start at passage 60, passage 70. So this is, this is one of the things why we need to derive neuroembryonic stem cell lines, I'll talk about that too, that are a little bit younger, that, you know, we have more of an opportunity to try and reverse before they get to the point of no return. So this experiment started at passage 74, it finished at passage 91, we had our control cells growing in our regular media, and we had our cells growing in media plus our chemicals butyrate, which we added for 10 passages first, and then butyrate and DZNP together, which we added for, um, for the next um, seven passages. And then we did an experiment. To just, just to remind you um, what the experiment looked like, so at passage 74 when we started it, this, we, this, the cells were mostly um, 80, just over 80% class 2 nuclei in these two sublines, and then in this one it was all 100% class 3. And at 91, when we finished the experiment, basically um, we had the number, the proportion of these class 2 nuclei had reduced, and instead we had a lot more of these old nuclei. What do these chemicals do to our old lines? Now we're starting to see some class 1. So we are starting to, with these chemicals, get some nuclei that have evidence of this naive state and we're losing some of the heterochromatin buildup. So what we have is um, our three sublines, the control showing about 40% class 2, this is about 40% class 2, and then this control 100% class 3. And in the ones that have been treated with but sodium butyrate and DZNP, we now had around 30% class 1 nuclei in the dish and a small amount of class 2, and we couldn't touch the class 3. And that's further confirmed looking at this subline here. These chemicals had absolutely no effect on these class 3 old nuclei. So we need to capture the embryonic stem cell lines before they've accumulated too much of this heterochromatin buildup so we can reprogram them, them back to this naive state. So this is basically a summary of what we found using old lines. Uh, we can reprogram some class 2 nuclei to this younger class 1 nuclei. We can't do anything about class 3 with these chemicals. So we decided that we need to derive new embryonic stem cell lines for a variety of purposes. We derive embryonic stem cell lines at UCLA with the intent of deriving lines that are going to be clinic grade that could be used in uh, clinical trials when the differentiation procedure has been um, developed. And also we want to derive these young lines that have full potential. And so that's the work that I'm going to be telling you about now. Can we identify this elusive class one by deriving new embryonic stem cell lines? So we've derived six new embryonic stem cell lines at UCLA. Um, they are all of normal carrier type. This is just showing you that, that we look at them from a very young passage. We're starting to look at them some in some cases as early as passage zero with some molecular analysis. So we split half and we look at the other half that's left. These carrier types were performed at passage five. The nice thing is we have four female lines to work with. So that's the cell lines we can use as indicators of heterochromatin buildup. Um, UCLA lines one to three were, were donated, embryos that were donated from the same couple to our derivation effort. So this gives us the opportunity of starting to look at differentiation in a similar genetic background compared to the other three lines that were donated, each one of these was donated from a different couple. There are assays that we use to make sure our stem cell lines are pluripotent. Uh, one of them is to do an alkaline phosphatase stain. So this is an embryonic stem cell colony. This is, a, this is three more. This is another one. And they should stain a pink color, which they do. There are transcription factors we need to look for that should be expressed in the nucleus, and they are. There are surface markers, such as stage-specific antigen 4 and trial 160, which should all be positive, which they are. 
In the human system, the other assay we use to prove pluripotency, so the ability to differentiate, is to take these cells and inject them into immunocompromised mice, and they form these small little benign tumors. And when we look at these tumors, you can actually see evidence of ectoderm. So this would be a little neural rosette. This would be an example of neural cells that can go on to form neurons. We see examples that come from mesodermal embryonic layer. So this is a small little bony structure that forms within these balls. And then this is um, an example of endoderm. We have a uh, pseudostratified epithelium with goblet cells and little cilia on. So this would be the equivalent of like a gut epithelium, basically. So these, we can see these when we generate these tiny little um, benign tumors. So when we looked at them, I'm just going to give you the answer. We could identify class 1. So, it's, so that also further um, suggests that this is progressive heterochromatin buildup, that when you look at these lines very early, you can see a bigger proportion of class 1 nuclei. So UCLA-1 was a combination of class 1 and class 2. It's about 50-50. I'll show you some of that data. UCLA-3 seems to be a class 1, almost 100% class 1. UCLA-4 was um, basically above 90% class 1. And UCLA-5 seemed to be a mix of class 1 and class 3. So UCLA-5 is actually progressing very quickly. And we did uh, these experiments from passage 14 onwards. So it's progressing into an old line very fast. So timing's got nothing to do with heterochromatin buildup. It really seems to be something endogenous to the cell line and perhaps something it's being exposed to as we're, uh, as we're deriving it, because all of these are derived at independent times. Okay, we can prove UCLA3 is a class 1 because when we differentiate, it should accumulate heterochromatin, as it, and it does. So this is undifferentiated, and then with 12 days of differentiation, you can see that lovely dot, so heterochromatin buildup. So we decided to add our chemicals for four passages and see what happens. And um, as it turns out, I'm sorry, the labels seem to have come off my um, graph. So I do apologize, but uh, and all the, also the color seems to have disappeared. But anyway, I think you'll remember that class one was yellow. And so therefore, the control has stayed about 90% yellow. And then when we add the drugs, it's also about 90% yellow. So still, we're maintaining at class one, which is nice. Now UCLA1. Um, uh, is about 50% class 1, about 50% class 2, and there's a small amount of um, class 3. So what happens when we add our drugs? Uh, what we see is we see a nice accumulation of, um, of class 1 nuclei, and we start to also see some class uh, 3 and a loss of the class 2. So in the young cell lines, we can improve the proportion of class 1, so improve the proportion of these naive cells from about 40% um, to about 70%. But this is only for four passages. What happens if we do it for 14 passages? Does it, do we improve it further? So we, this is UCLA 4. This is just to um, show you that we started off at passage 20 with almost 90% young nuclei, and then by 14 passages, we just had old nuclei. So again, very clear example that embryonic stem cells age. If we add these chemicals and we look at them at various time points, passage 24, passage 30, and passage 34, what I think you can appreciate, and especially if we look at passage 34, that by adding these um, chemicals either singly, butyrate and desinib, or butyrate and desinib, we're able to maintain between 70 and 90% class um, 1 nuclei. So we're able to hold these nuclei in a younger state. All right. Does that improve differentiation potential? Because remember, this is one of the reasons why we're doing it. 
And I don't have an answer for you yet because we haven't started these experiments. But I just wanted to show you this is, so we can use these chemicals to create these class one nuclei. And the next step is to look at their differentiation. And that's actually very hard to do because I can't differentiate in my lab all the different cell types of the body. I need to collaborate with people. And so what I'm going to show you now is, of, is pictures of people that I'm going to be collaborating with at UCLA and in the department of MCDB who can help me to differentiate various cell types for research. So in my lab, we generate cell types for understanding infertility. Can we improve the generation by using these young lines? Uh, we have preliminary data that suggests that we can. What about other cell types? Well, if I want to generate blood cell types, I'll just go to my next door neighbor, Hannah Mickler, who is an associate professor in MCDB, and she generates hematopoietic cells, um, as does Gay Crooks and uh, Jerome Zack. At UCLA, we also generate heart cell types, so heart progenitor cells. And um, Austin Nakano, who is my colleague in MCDB, he generates those beating heart cells that you saw earlier on in this talk um, for analysis. If I want to generate neural cell types, we've got a beautiful cohort of investigators who just think about how do you get neuronal cells from embryonic stem cells. And in particular, um, we have William Lowry, who's my colleague in MCDB, um, Ben Novich, um, Harley Kornblum, Guan Bing Fan, and Yi Sun, who are all investigators at UCLA. And if you want to generate endodermal subtypes, I'll go to my colleague in MCDB, Anil Bouchon, who's also here tonight as well. So as you can see at UCLA, we're a very collaborative community. We have investigators like me who think about the problems of how do you get stem cells to grow better? How do you create the best potential stem cells you can? And then we have investigators who think about differentiating them into cell types that are experimentally interesting and also clinically relevant. And so, um, so these are all the people that I'll be calling on next week. Okay, so I told you about medias. I want to tell you a little bit, one slide about surfaces. So we're trying to create these naive cell lines, but one of the things we're working against is when we grow our embryonic stem cell colonies in FDA-approved medias, this is what they look like. You can see one colony here, this is one cell line, one colony here, one colony here, and one colony here. They're all different sizes. So that heterogeneity is not necessarily the best. So what we're doing now is developing surfaces and we can create surfaces to grow embryonic stem cells in a very specific size and in very specific locations relative to each other. And so this is, um, this is work that, um, that my lab is now incorporating into our new media formulations, but it was developed by my colleague April Pyle, who's also in the life sciences and MIMG, and Bruce Dunn, who's an engineer on campus. So this is an example of an, uh, of an outside collaboration with engineers to improve the practice of growing embryonic stem cells. Okay. So I'm going to end by talking about the future of embryonic stem cells. There is a need to continue to derive embryonic stem cells to understand basic self-renewal and pluripotency. But at the same time, this new technology has now, um, has now, uh, is now being used. And this is a way that we can overcome using human embryos and, and move into creating pluripotent cell types from fibroblast cells or from skin biopsies. And so bypassing embryos completely. And I think that that's an incredibly important uh, research area to pursue and to work towards. And so this technology was developed by this Japanese scientist, Shinya Yanamaka. And what that basically involves is taking transcription factors that are required for self-renewal, that proliferation of stem cells, and expressing them in uh, skin biopsy from your fibroblasts from your skin. And what 
that can do is cause them to wind back the clock and become very similar to an embryonic stem cell. And then we can use them in the same way to generate all these terrific cell types um, for study. So he first pioneered this work in 2006 using mouse cells and then the race was on. Can these same technologies apply to human cells? And as it turns out, it can. And in 2008, a cohort of studies, including one from UCLA, and, uh, and in particular, my colleague uh, Bill Lowry and also Catherine Plath, showed that you could take human fibroblast cells and add these four factors, four transcription factors, and reprogram them back to a pluripotent state. And so this is an example of what one of these colonies would look like. And it stains for those same surface markers that we, um, that we use to define an embryonic stem cell as an embryonic stem cell. So that means that we can now complete our little circle. So you have your individual uh, um, who donates their skin fibroblast, we create our stem cell line, we can differentiate it into various cell types, and then we can understand causes behind disease in the same genetic background that that individual became afflicted with the disease. Or we could use this patient's own cells for cell-based therapy and therefore overcome the barrier of histocompatibility problems because you're using this individual's same cells. It's incredibly exciting technology. It's something that we at UCLA are, are working towards um, uh, today. This is an example of two embryonic stem cell colonies. One is an embryonic stem cell colony. One is an induced pluripotent stem cell colony. Can you tell the difference? Uh, if you looked at 10 of these and 10 of these, the answer is no. In fact, I can't even tell the difference. I can't even tell you which one is which. I can't remember. But when you look down the microscope, they look absolutely identical. So morphologically, they look identi identical. By all the basic assays, like the teratoma assay, they are completely identical. But now we're beginning to appreciate that these induced pluripotent stem cells are different from embryonic stem cells. They tend to have mutations um, in places in the genome that you may not want them. We don't understand how important this is yet, but I think what it does tell us is we need to continue to improve on our practices of deriving ES cell lines and of, also, of iPS cell lines and also growing iPS cell lines as well. We need to have further instruction from embryonic stem cells on how to do this. Okay. So just to wrap up, it's getting late. Um, I want to, although we've talked a lot about embryonic stem cells today, I, I really want to impress upon you that there is a place for both embryonic and non-embryonic stem cell research, um, non-embryonic stem cell uh, research for both research purpose, purposes and for clinical practice. This is not a race and this is not a competition. Sometimes you'll hear about it in the news that adult stem cells are better than embryonic stem cells. But as scientists, we, we think that there's different stem cells are going to be important for different diseases and that we shouldn't just exclude one type of stem cell versus another and we should look at all of them and decide in a critical and unbiased way what stem cell will be best for what purpose. Um, I think the field of pluripotency and the field of embryonic stem cell research has made remarkable progress in just over a decade. So in 12 years, we've gotten to two FDA-approved clinical trials. It's hard to believe other fields moving as quickly as this towards trying to help the community. And finally, from a basic biology's perspective, 
The growth and maintenance of stem cells is the bedrock of stem cell biology. Improving the way we grow these cells, improving the, um, improving the, the chromatin and the naivety of these cells is essential for their future applications, not only in research, but also in clinical practice in the future. Okay, so um, I have a lot of uh, people to acknowledge and in particular these are the people in my lab. In pink are the people who actually did the work and who study um, uh, generation of reproductive cell types from embryonic stem cells. In green are the undergraduates I have in my lab. I have four undergraduates usually at any given time that have their own research project and uh, we teach to grow embryonic stem cells and induce pluripotent stem cells. Um, in particular, I'd like to thank the Broad Stem Cell Research Center and uh, in particular Steve Peckman who is here tonight who, who helps us with all of the appropriate consenting and institutional review approval to be able to receive human embryos into our research program. All of our embryonic stem cell lines are registered with the NIH and they are available to anybody in the UCLA community for, for performing their own research with. Uh, we distribute them. Rachel Kim, who uh, works with me to derive the embryonic stem cell lines. The derivation of new lines was funded um, by, the, by a grant that I received from the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine and also um, funding from the Broad Stem Cell Center. We have um, a, a, a wonderful working group of um, scientists who think about differentiation, who think about stem cell biology, who I work with. Um, and then this is the funding that I currently have right now to support the research program. So thank you. You can take Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. Um, this James Thompson in Wisconsin has a patent on his, his cell line. Right. And right now, there's big uh, debate as to whether these things should be patentable. Right. And right now, going through Congress is patent legislation. Right. Does it address it? Uh, so, so, I think the answer to that is, Yes and no. So the original application that Jamie Thompson um, put in for deriving embryonic stem cells, um, I believe um, it's not finalized. He doesn't yet have the patent for being able to derive embryonic stem cell lines because it was based on other technology that already existed. Um, so I think on, you know, on one hand, as a scientist, it's uh, good to be able to protect your intellectual property. Um, but on the other hand, you don't want to restrict it, which I think Jamie Thompson does, definitely. Restrict it to the point where you can't use it even as a scientist anymore. So, so something needs to happen to, on one hand, protect intellectual property, but enable it to be used freely in the community. Yeah. How do you help get around the public misperceptions of what an embryonic stem cell is? Uh, by giving lectures like this. Good. Yeah, absolutely, yes. That's a great question. Thank you. Thanks for speaking tonight. Can you talk about how you would like to use stem cells in your laboratory to treat um, with the infertility research? What kinds of questions you'd like to ask? Yeah, so we, we are using it primarily right now just to understand mechanisms. So creating these um, early regenerative cell types and understanding molecular pathways that are involved in their formation in the first place. So that's what we do in our lab. Yeah, so in terms of generating a cell type to treat infertility, that's something that my lab is interested in working towards, but um, it's, this is decades away. So we aren't going to be able to make a cell type to treat infertility next year. It's, it's decades and considerable oversight. 
So the Hingston Group has established um, a, um, a governing body to m monitor this research to make sure it's done in, a, in an ethical and responsible way.